listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. So I was uh, profoundly struck by um, a comment that was made by syndicated columnist Mark Shields this last past week on the uh, news hour. And he and David Brooks uh, always have their uh, very polite and civil tete-a-tete uh, where they discuss the week's events and kind of, you know, what's gone on and so forth. And I always find that uh, David Brooks has this kind of youthful crankiness about him if there is such a thing. And Mark Shields always has this just friendly Boston Irish way. There's something about him that's just very, very kind. And I'll tell you a little short side note. I was at a, uh, an event where, where Mark Shields was speaking. And uh, I happened to be at this time teaching a comparative politics class. And there's this group of girls in the class who whenever we would do some like analysis of the news or whatever, and I was just showing a clip of uh, what uh, Mark Shields had to say, or in, in those days, I guess David Gergen was his uh, worthy opponent. Um, the girls would kind of sit there and they'd, they'd go, oh, isn't he cute? <laughs> and I just thought this is the funniest thing. So uh, I'm with my, uh, 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 wife and and she says you you got to tell him, you got to tell him this. I'm like no no. She she goes no no no, no you have to tell him this. And so I I go up after he gives his speech, and uh, and and I said I said Mr. Shields, I'm Michael McAllister, and he holds out his hand. He goes Michael McAllister. It sounds like a great Irish name. And I go well thank you very much. And this real nice, big soft hand with this powerful handshake. And uh, he says, uh, he, I, I say, I just, I got to share something with you that you're going to find hopefully really complimentary. And he goes, me? You're kidding. I can't wait. What, what is it? And, and I said, well, I, I teach this course in, in comparative uh, politics. And um, there's this group of girls who really think you're something special. And he goes, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, honey, come here. <laughs> <laughs> so his wife comes up and she, she says, I go, how, how are you? you know, he introduces us and so forth. I go, look, your, your husband's got kind of a fan club uh, among a group of, uh, uh, you know, a group of my students and uh, my female students. And she goes, she goes, what, you're telling me, like, this is supposed to be a surprise? He's kind of hot, isn't he? <laughs> That's the cutest thing. Anyway, his, his, uh, one of the reasons I like him is just because, aside from just this playful, his playfulness to him, um, he, can, he can hit with insight and um, 
he can get to the story that's underneath the story in ways periodically that I just found I find to be really profound and rich. And this is exactly what happened this last Friday when he made a, a point about the uh, massacre in Tucson. And he brought up um, a historian, Allen Ginsberg, out of Maine, uh, University of Maine, I believe is where he teaches. And he, uh, he said, the observation that kind of arose was that here was a white Catholic Republican federal judge murdered on his way to greet a Democratic woman of Congress who was his friend and was Jewish. Her life was saved initially by a 20-year-old gay Mexican-American college student and eventually by a Korean-American combat surgeon. And it was all eulogized and explained by an African-American president. America. And we spent some time in here talking about this idea of kind of egocentrism, tribal centrism, and then global centrism. And even past that, cosmocentrism. One of the great gifts that perhaps Tucson has offered each one of us is a sense that there are bigger forces at work here. That in fact, this disaster, these deaths, remind us of Dr. King's speech. Is his dream coming true? Well, maybe not yet. We got further to go, no doubt. But that was a beautiful, a beautiful bit of insight as far as I was concerned, that we actually are moving in a really profoundly rich direction that goes beyond boundary, that goes beyond the boundary of ego and indeed beyond the boundary of tribe, potentially catapulting this idea of America into something that's beyond global even. Who knows how it'll work? Who knows how it'll transpire? That's not important. The fact is that we have this offering in disaster amazing stuff can unfold. The minute we experience loss, amazing stuff can unfold. I've got a, um, a friend, a couple of friends that I hadn't seen in nearly, uh, well, nearly 30 years. And their mother is, uh, is dying. And they both came out here, one from Ohio, one from New York. And they were talking about how this tragedy has indeed not only allowed for them to see and witness a teaching come from this marvelous mother of theirs who's, who's dying, okay, but they also have been able to reconnect with people that they haven't really had any connection with for some time. That even in disaster, there is something really powerful for us if we're available to it. Every disaster, every loss, no matter how brutal, no matter how unfair it may seem, is still a red carpet into the house of spirit. It's still an offering. Every single thing, every single thing can lead us right into the heart of awakening if we're just available to it. And that's one of the things that meditation allows for. Meditation actually encourages that availability. We sit still. We just sit still. We watch our mind. We don't try to push it, pull it. Maybe we just watch our mind. And every once in a while, there are these gaps between our thoughts. And in that space, there is no mind. 
There is the now. There is the deep singularity. There is our true face staring back at us. And it's empty. There's nothing there. But we resonate with it somehow. And then a thought comes in and we go, oh, there you are, I thought. You know, but then there's gap. And being able to kind of live in that gap, from that gap in thought, allows for an enrichment of our world. It pushes everything forward. It allows for everything to kind of move kind of up this spiral, as we've talked about. It allows for everything to go from, you know, be it ego, tribal, or uh, uh, world-centric. It allows for us to go into this cosmocentric place where we recognize it's all the infinite dancing. It's all openness on display. And it's so nourishing. It's such a nourishing place to live. It's such a nourishing place to live from, with, and from. From, wait, from, with, I'll get my preposition straight here in a minute, but just this, this spaciousness, being able to walk with a body that is informed consciously by this infinite spaciousness. So tonight, as we sit still, all we're trying to do is allow for there to be a real break, a real rest that can occur, where we don't have to think about anything. We don't have to really indulge or reject any type of feeling that's coming up. We don't have to do anything except be. Just be present, no matter what comes up. No matter what we might be grieving, no matter what we might be celebrating, can we just be here alone and yet together, totally available? Can we just watch everything as it arises without going after it, without rejecting it, just sitting there in total relaxation with whatever presents itself? Practice that, and you are practicing the unfolding of awakening. On this anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's birth, I... Uh, I'm reminded of courage, what it must have been like to have uh, chosen the path he chose in the face of all of it, just being upright, as we say in Buddhism, you know, just being right there for the nearly daily death threats he had most of his adult life. Um, still trying to raise a family, hold together a congregation at Ebenezer. I mean, it's just a fascinating, fascinating series of gifts that he was able to give. And I had this uh, <clears throat> college professor 
who extended this amazing gift to the class uh, one day when uh, we were going through the transition from the 50s, the fabulous 50s, into the 60s and how on that date in August of 1963 when uh, the civil, civil rights movement really hit its stride with Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. He, uh, this, this is before the days of YouTube. He said, I have something for you today that I, I, I'm guessing most of you haven't seen. And uh, he turns on the projector and he has the entire speech. The entire speech. If you ever want to give yourselves a treat, watch the entire speech. It's a beautiful build. You know, it, he starts in this, this soft, kind of easy cadence that builds, of course, into the crescendo that we always hear. Which even when you hear the crescendo alone, it resonates in really powerful ways. But when you, when you get the full effect of the speech, it was just really remarkable. There wasn't a dry eye in the entire uh, uh, lecture hall of, you know, what, 150, 200 kids. We were all just riveted. How did we miss that? Um, and it always stuck with me. And then I uh, worked with a woman who actually was there at the event, not too far from the, she, was, she said she was off to the, the left-hand hand side about uh, uh, a quarter of the way down, so she was relatively close. She could see the, the speakers, and Dr. King was the, uh, he was the headliner. And she said it was like something shifted, and everybody could feel it. It wasn't just a good speech, it was something, something kind of shifted. And uh, I always thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. I decided to look at the speech again today, except this time I wanted to read it, so I found, uh, I found the text, which I also actually posted on the, on the site. Uh, and I was taken with its spiritual charge, especially as it corresponds with the uh, the version of uh, Buddhism that I tend to talk about. And I pulled three, three bits out of it that I thought were worthy of our consideration just before we end up having a dialogue with each other. Let's start, start with uh, just minutes into, into the speech where he says, We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to live our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all God's children. Now, the first fierce urgency of now, that's exactly what we're really trying to uncover and open up for each of us as we sit still. That present moment that's always here. Now is the time. And that all of these kind of uh, 
maybe abstracts of you know liberty and justice for all that all men and women are created equal these these ideas you know what they really flourish in that openness of now as we begin to walk through our world day in and day out from that place as i mentioned earlier we literally become freedom we become justice we become equality we become kind of this beautiful merger of all things. We become the infinite consciously embodied. Dr. King goes on, but there is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. Sound familiar based on this week's events? Um, felt so proud of uh, our commander-in-chief hitting what I consider to be an absolute home run. Uh, because he reminded me of what it means to be really truly participatory beyond politics, beyond the division, beyond this and that, us, them, there is something bigger. And in speaking in this deeply kind of world-centric, second-tier language, uh, I think it has a way of kind of co-opting the very natural tendency to go into tribal centrism, to become in-group versus out-group, that tends to get shaken a little bit. Last point I would make here. Uh, my professor says, I don't know how true this is, but I love the story. <laughs> he says that, so Dr. King finishes his speech. He finishes his speech with the, uh, uh, the ending lines here. He says, go back to Mississippi, go back to Alabama, go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. And you can watch him pause. And my professor said, again, I don't know how true this is, that I believe it was Mahalia Jackson, but I might be wrong, standing two rows behind was Belafonte, I think it was on one side, and Mahalia Jackson. And she says, Martin, tell him about the dream. Tell him about the dream. Now, I couldn't hear that on the, on the footage that was shown. But he said that this, uh, you know, was historically accurate and so forth. Didn't matter. It's the coolest story ever because then what he says is, I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And he goes on. 
That's what all of us are familiar with. We're familiar that uh, familiar with the uh, the line. Uh, this is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. This is with this faith we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be a day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land, where my, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. And he carries on in what I consider to be just such a beautiful, beautiful exclamation point to this whole thing. When this happens, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last. free at last. Thank God Almighty we're free at last. And this is our work. It's not just someone else. It's not just us. It's together. That as long as one person is trapped, we're all trapped. And it's such a beautiful path. There's so much here for us. And it begs the question, at least in a, uh, a spiritual sense, well, what is freedom? What does it mean to be free at last? What would that look like to any of us? It might be something really concrete. Else it might be something we're not quite sure of. But this is the work. This is the work. Dr. King's legacy, as profound as it is in you know, so many different corners of our American story, it also leads us as individuals to tell ourselves about the dream. It's like we've got our own internal Mahalia Jackson yelling at, hey, tell them about the dream. <laughs> so what would that look like? What would it look like to be free at last? I'm asking, what would it look like to you? So if there are any questions that came up, I wanted to make sure I could uh, open the group up.
to those. Yeah? We were wondering if everyone else had the same hope for the world. Well, there's a way of checking. <laughs> Would you want to do a show of hands? <laughs> okay, how many want peace on earth? All right. <laughs> we, we all sort of had the same feeling that to be free from, that people would be free from fear of other people. Mm. Countries free from Freedom of fear. Yeah. That's a good one. So, so in relationship to the speech, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Actually, if we're using that as a metaphor for the path towards enlightenment, just like at the end of the Heart Sutra, we say, you know, um, gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. In many respects, we're saying exactly the same thing. That, uh, uh, um, that this freedom that we're talking about is a freedom from fear, a freedom from pain, more or less. That we on each other. Yeah, yeah, that we inflict on each other. And the only way that can happen is if we are living from the perspective of isolation and defensiveness or ego. So if we get to the roots of all of this, if we're really going to be free, we need to be so, so, so familiar with the ego and its tendencies that our relationship to the whole mushbuk shifts and changes radically. And at that point, fear is not really even in the picture. It's, it's fascinating. You know, but that's really where the teaching is going. It's one of the great instigators of suffering is fear. Imagine that, to be free of fear. And fear is always about losing something. So it's always going to, the possibilities of being afraid are always going to be there. So you're saying, are you saying that you have to change your attitude Yeah, you shift it. it and it kind of happens automatically the minute you start seeing the folly of this self that we've built an entire life around. When we start seeing that, that the self that we have built, the personality that we are busy decorating to show people, you know, all that stuff, it's all there, but that there is something much bigger that uh, can actually once once we start kind of backing into it we start the the recognition of it begins to kind of take over that in us which has been small becomes indeed small we start seeing things from a much larger big self perspective and we not only see ourselves in that relative tininess but we see all other selves in that relative tininess that it's all one thing we start recognizing that spaciousness as a living embodiment of flow. Rivers don't fear. I don't know where that came from or who said that, but, <laughs> but 
ask your river psychologist and they'll tell you that. <laughs> you look perplexed. No, I just realized that it, I'm waiting for all humans to get along and all countries to get along. That will make me feel free. You're right. Start with yourself. It's just a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit, little quicker. Yeah. It's like the, the, the Tibetan saying that I'm going to mangle here, but I love the line. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to cobble together a pair of shoes than to try to cover the entire world with leather. Right? And so what we do as we practice is quite literally we begin to, you know, develop shoes. Um, and when, when we can shift our relationship to all beings, to all conflict, to all, and we're not approaching it from a divided space, then we essentially become the peace. And just as Dr. King did, and without much, he changed everything. That's a divinely big ego, one that's huge as opposed to one that's fighting, you know? I don't even like using the word ego, but it's a big self, you know, that was at play. And the reason why we could hear it was because we all have that underneath everything else. Anything else? Yeah. Okay, we came up with um, fear as well and also non-judging and are wondering if you weren't judging, if one did not judge yourself or others or experiences, would there not be fear? If you're not evaluating anything, you're just you're not judging it as good or bad or I think I think the minute you or I or anybody can take situations as they are without giving them some type of egoic blessing of aha, excellent or bad or something like that. The minute we can kind of go past that is the minute we make room for love. And um, love is like light, and fear can't exist. In light. Darkness cannot exist in the presence of light, right? And that fear that, that we've been talking about cannot exist when that love is there. So when we stop judging, okay, we stop making value judgments, we stop infinite categorization, compartmentalization of things, and instead take them as they are without their stories, the stories that we've, we've authored. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Suddenly we have this space for love. That light then helps to eradicate it uh, in, in a really marvelously beautiful way, you know? It doesn't get rid of judgment by judging, you know? 
Uh, instead, what happens is we begin to open. And fear can't last there either. So, so is that where freedom is? I'd say so. Have you ever felt more free than when you were deeply in the throes of non-clingy love? You know? We can get seduced or we can get intoxicated by clingy love. No, I've never felt that. You've never felt that? <laughs> it's clingy. I so, <laughs> so appreciate your honesty. It's waiting for you. It's waiting for you. And it doesn't always, always take the shape of, uh, it's, I had it described to me this way when I, I, I was um, speaking with an individual about uh, a struggle that they were having maritally. And um, uh, she was saying, it's so difficult, you know, see, it's so difficult. Um, uh, she was lamenting the fact that there wasn't much zip in their, in their uh, you know, 40-year uh, marriage or whatever. No more zip and so forth, I think, was the word she used. Don't worry, it's no one in here, so I'm not, not divulging. No one, in, yeah, who, who? Who might that be? 40 years? Hmm. No. But she was, uh, uh, she was saying, my love for him and my love for our relationship is like the bottom of the ocean, immovable, profound, still, untouched by so much of the crap that goes on at the surface of, of, her, uh, of her relationship. I thought that was such a powerful metaphor, you know? It's untouched, really untouched by the, the whim of romance. Not that romance, there's anything wrong with it, but the minute we start looking at romance as being it, the minute we start looking at, you know, sexual ecstasy as being the pan-ultimate of our relationship is the minute we start predicating an entire series of choices, decisions, all sorts of stuff on something that's inherently flimsy. It's like building, building a relationship on a house of cards. So how do we actually make sure it's at the bottom of the ocean? That means we have to become oceanic in our consciousness. It can't happen unless that happens. We have to start there. You'll get there. Yeah. You, you know why I know you'll get there? Because you're already there. You're already there. It's getting the other stuff kind of out of the way first. Dusting off the lampshade, that light will begin to shine. Yeah. Go team, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming tonight. Happy MLK birthday. And uh, may we all be free at last. Free at last. Mm -hmm.